Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Today we're wrapping up part five uh, of our series, Brand New. And this series has been a lot of fun because... Everything, especially if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, you know, we went through COVID and that really changed kind of our dynamic stuff as far as uh, people. But over the past five years, our message has really been the same and it's been leading up to to uh, where we're going as a body, where I, I believe the church is going as a body. But it's this series has really kind of crammed everything that we've talked about over the years kind of into one general thought uh, to help us think differently about Christianity, to help us think differently about Christian life. And so uh, if you're here this morning or if maybe you're watching online and it's your first time to uh, get a part of this series, uh, go back and catch up to all five of these parts because it's really, really awesome. So if you're new or if you don't know us, if you're watching and you don't know us, uh, no big deal, but know that. But I honestly always hear some of the things I say because of the way I grew up, but I honestly love the local church. I always have. Uh, the reason that I was hurting and passed through ministry so bad when I was a kid is because church played such an important, impactful role in my life. Um, so I do. I love the local church. And how many of you here this morning grew up in church, around church? Okay. So a lot of us, you probably grew up, at least maybe you didn't like necessarily your church or whatever, but uh, most of us probably loved our local church and loved the church in general. But even with all of that said, and, and as much as I've always loved the church as a whole, I understand this. I understand why people resist it, okay? Even though I love it, I get why people resist church. I get why people resist Christianity, and I get why people resist Jesus. And, and the sad thing about it is all the reasons that people resist church and resist Christianity should not even exist in the first place. But if you want to resist Christianity, there should only be really one valid reason to resist Christianity, and that is if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, okay? That's a valid point, and, and we could talk about that, but that's really the only good reason. But a lot of us, the reason that we become uh, disconnected from the church or have a bad taste about the church in our mouth or, or just kind of frustrated with the church or become angry or whatever are, are usually not theological reasons. They, they're reasons that have nothing to do with Jesus but there are just reasons that never should have been there in the first place. And if we're honest, many of the things that we've resisted about church are things that the church should have actually resisted in the first place. Now, over the last four weeks, we've really talked about how the church began, um, especially when Constantine got involved and, and where it went and to where uh, it started going back downhill and then the Reformation so we've talked about this journey because when Jesus showed up, 
from the very beginning, when Jesus showed up, he showed up and he announced something that was brand new. On week one, we started talking about it. Uh, we, we labeled it as the temple model. So when Jesus showed up, everything that he did was, was a total departure from the temple model. Now, the temple model, and this is just a little bit of refresher, the temple model represents all religion dating back to uh, ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian, Roman religion, ancient Judaism, and still a lot of religion that we see today. Now, in the temple model, there are always sacred places. Everybody say sacred places. Sacred places. And within these sacred places, you have sacred texts. And these sacred texts are usually locked in, put in these sacred places, at least especially in our, the ancient religions. And then you have these sacred people, okay? These sacred people were always sacred men. You have these sacred men who, who had access to these sacred texts, and they would interpret these sacred texts to the sincere followers or to the superstitious followers or to the scared followers that probably eventually became scarred followers, right? You know what I'm saying? And, and so you've got these sacred men interpreting these sacred texts and would stand and say things like, here's the way it reads, and this is what it means. So if you want to go to heaven, do as I say, as I've interpreted. If you want to, if you don't do as I say, you'll go to hell, right? That's the message in a lot of these uh, religions. But when Jesus showed up, he, he changed everything. He says, I've come to introduce something brand new, not just something new to the Jewish people, but something that was for the entire world. Now, that's, that was a game changer. That He said, I've come in, and I'm going to bring a brand new covenant. This is a new arrangement between God and man. Now, we say new covenant, and I, we've addressed this a couple times. We're even today, we're not really in a covenant, but that was what he said. That was the language he used to get them out of their covenant system because that was all they knew. That was all they knew was covenant. So Jesus comes along, and he says, I'm putting you into a new covenant, okay? And this is the final. It's over from this point on. This is the way it's going to be. And he says, and through that, I'm going to give you a new command. Everybody say new command. And this one command, now listen, church, this is important. This one command supersedes all other commands, right? And if you're Jewish, you're thinking, there's 600 plus commands. See, we grew up on the Western side. We had the Big Ten, right? We had the Big Ten commands. But Jesus, what he's saying here is this one command that I'm going to give you, it supersedes, it overrides all the other commands, because every religious system, every temple system had their own set of rules and regulations. And he says, by this one command, there is going to be birthed a new ethic, a new ethic by which everything will become the filter for how you live your life. Every single decision you make will flow out of this new ethic. And because of that, you will see a new movement that's starting to take place and starting to shift. And that was the Jesus movement. They called it the way. Unfortunately, uh, it has been mistitled the church. 
We've talked about this, that the church, uh, the word church comes from a German word that means house of the Lord. But when Jesus came, he did not come to establish a place. That had already been done. He came to establish a people. He came to establish a movement. Now, this little Greek word, ekklesia, that's translated church in your English Bible should have been because Jesus was gambly or gathering uh, or congregation because Jesus was gathering people around this very simple idea, around a very personal claim, and through that, the church was born. And as we've discovered, and as we're going to continue to discover as we go forward, the Jesus model is far less complicated than the temple model, okay? The temple model had lots of rules and regulations and expectations and formats, and man, it was crazy. The Jesus model is far less complicated, and in the Jesus model, you don't have to go to a sacred place, amen? In the Jesus model, you don't have to kill anything, amen? In the Jesus model, you don't have, nothing has to die. This is awesome. In fact, all the bloodshed that you need in the Jesus model has already been shed. It's already been done. That's powerful. That's so awesome. In fact, it's so less complicated. Jesus would say this, and the New Testament teaches that you will never go to a more sacred spot than the sacred person that is sitting next to you. You'll never find a place more sacred <coughs> than the person that is sitting next to you. From this point forward, Jesus said, all sacred places are over. Why? It's pretty simple. Because you are sacred. And you were sacred, and you were sacred, and you were saying, everybody, I'm Oprah Winfrey. Everybody's sacred. Everybody's going home sacred today, right? And, and why are you sacred? Because some, some people may ask that. Well, what, what makes me sacred? Well, I'll tell you what makes you sacred. You were created in his image. You were created in the image of God, and you are sacred. The image of God and the Holy Spirit that inhabited the holy temple now inhabits people. And so Jesus, the Jesus model is far less complicated, but as Pastor Kevin brought up last week, it is more demanding, okay? It's more demanding because in religion, in the temple system, there's always a loophole. There's always a place to hide. In the religious system, there's always workarounds. Every religious system, consequently, is full of hypocrisy. Some of the reasons people avoid churches today, right? There's loopholes. There's work full of hypocrisy, right? There's loopholes. There's workarounds. There's ways to, to wiggle your way and finesse your way around anything you want to say and to justify anything you want to justify, which makes it full of hypocrisy. But, as Jesus told his followers through the, through the Jesus model, in, inside the Jesus model, there's really no place to hide. In the religious temple, in the temple system, there's lots of places to hide. In the Jesus model, there's no place to hide because Jesus told his followers late in his ministry, he said this, 
<coughs> as I have loved you, so you must love one another, right? Well, wait a minute. You know, I can imagine his disciples going, okay, wait, wait, wait. Say that again. Go slow. Well, as I have loved you, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got that part. You love us a lot. And he says, now you are to, I mean, this was complicated, right? This, this, what Jesus was teaching them was so complicated because he says, now love each other, right? You are to love each other, right? It was so complicated. You must love each other. Here's why we dodge it. Here's why we dodge it. Here's why it is easier to embrace the temple model approach to religion than the Jesus model. Because when it comes to the type of love that Jesus taught and that Jesus modeled, there was no place to hide, right? <laughs> there were no loopholes. There were no workarounds. There was no shortcuts. It was just Jesus' love. He says, the way I love you, you love each other. That's it. There's no tricks in their temple system. Man, you could get all around all kinds of rules, regulations. When it comes to the Jesus model, we almost always know the answer to this question. What does love require of me? Man, if we were passing out free tattoos today, that would be the tattoo. What does love require of me? Okay, what does love require me? Well, but Pastor Jared, you don't understand. I, I, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just not a New Testament scholar. I just, I just, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. To be honest, Pastor Jared, I just, I don't even know all the Greek and all the Hebrew and all that kind of, I, and to be honest, I haven't even read the whole Bible. Well, that's okay. You just have to answer one simple question. What does love require? of me. Isn't that easy? Isn't that so simple? It doesn't matter because this was a, the single command, the single command. This was the single ethic. This was the driving force as Jesus taught it. And I don't know how we missed it because Jesus was so clear. Paul, he would come along years later and he would follow up and he would say this. We talked about this a few weeks ago that the single command, this one idea, would serve as the filter for everything else. Everything else. The Old Testament, the New Testament is simply commentary. The Old Testament and the New Testament is simply application for this one. It started off so good. It started off so well. And I think one of the reasons that it begins so well is they only had two things to go off of. One, they had a resurrected Savior, and so they just didn't fear death. And the other one was that uh, they had this idea that they were supposed to do for others what Jesus did for them. That was it. <laughs> that was all they had to go off of. They didn't need a Bible. They didn't need a Bible study. Hello. They didn't need to study the Greek and the Hebrew and all the translations. They just knew what Jesus did for them and that they were to do that back to everyone else. It was pretty simple and pretty clear. 
And the first century Christians loved one another, and this blew the minds of pagans. <coughs> this messed up their world because they couldn't fathom why these Christians would love pagans so much. Why the Christians, not just the pagans, but why they loved anyone who could not do anything for them. Hmm. Because those people are easy to love, right? So you're going to pay all my bills this month? Huh. I love you. Right? That's easy. You're going to pay off my truck? I love you. That's easy. They were, it was unheard of. The idea of loving someone that could do nothing for you was unheard of. It wasn't even a word to describe it. And these crazy Christians, they love people that couldn't do anything for them in return. And all of a sudden, Christianity, this Jesus movement, started gaining traction. And over time, it grew more and more and more and more. Suddenly, people started leaving paganism and attaching themselves to this Jesus movement because it was so powerful and it was so attractive. At the time, they're leaving paganism in the groves. I mean, they're leaving them in just monster numbers, attaching themselves to this Jesus movement. And you know what? There wasn't even a New Testament. There wasn't even a New Testament. And all these people are just going and starting to follow Jesus. There was just a story here and a story there, and, and there was a, a letter from Paul here, and there was a letter over here, and, and that's all that they needed. And in the fourth century, all of a sudden, Christianity, who was led by a Savior, who was crucified by Rome, became the primary religion, the legal religion for Rome. So the group of people, the Romans, who tried to stomp out and stamp out this Jesus movement in the 4th century said, you know what? That is now our national religion. That is our legal religion. We, we're the ones who killed the, the starter of that whole thing. And now that is our religion. And Christians went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority, and everything changed. Unfortunately, at that time, they began to exercise temple brand authority. And without meaning to, and it was really probably no one's fault. Uh, I mean, there was a little bit of political stuff in there, but really without meaning to, uh, they took the temple model and they just started cramming Jesus' teachings into it. And before long, the Jesus movement that was about the simplicity of a resurrected Savior and this Jesus movement that was about the simplicity of love one another, all of a sudden it took form and shape and it became a temple model. This Jesus movement suddenly became a temple model. And, and then all of a sudden there were sacred places again because there hadn't been for a long time. Then there were sacred places popping up everywhere. And in those sacred places, all of a sudden, there was sacred people put into those sacred places. And there became a hierarchy of those sacred people. <laughs> and they started gathering all the sacred texts, and they put them into this sacred place so that the sacred men could tell everybody else 
how that they're to live their life. Much of this at the time, it actually was a huge advantage to Christians in the first, second, third, fourth, and even ongoing centuries. But ultimately, they developed this temple model of the Jesus movement, and it was, it was terrible. It wasn't what Jesus intended. And then in the 16th century, and this is still a little bit of my recap from last, this is four weeks crammed into the recap, okay? So stay with me here. So then in the 16th century, we experienced the Reformation, okay? <laughs> the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And once again, all of a sudden, Christianity started taking huge steps forward. In the Reformation, we were introduced to this phrase, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And the reformers, they came along and they said, whoa, 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 whoa. No longer are we cool with the authority of the church. The church system has been corrupted. At least they got something right, right? The church system, this temple model, it's corrupt. And we are going to stand by the scriptures. We are going to stand by the scriptures alone. The scriptures are inspired. <coughs> they are authoritative. And no longer is the church the authority. The scriptures are the authority. And the crowd went wild. Not all of them, but some of them. And the Jesus movement started picking up steam again. It started becoming not so much about the temples and temple systems, and it became about this movement and the, the message of Christ, and it was powerful a second, but all of a sudden, here's what happened. Everybody said, yeah, we believe that scriptures are the authority, not this corrupted church system. So they started passing out Bibles like candy. And they started handing uneducated people the Old Testament bound up with the New Testament, and they'd hand it to these people and say, this is the authority, and it is all inspired, and it is all authoritative for all people. And they went, wow, this is awesome. And people took those Bibles, and they started studying and reading those Bibles, and all of a sudden, they started finding contradictions. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is all inspired, all authoritative, but this just, this contradicts itself, and all of a sudden there are these contradictions, contradictions, but not in the historicity of the scriptures, but there were contradictions in the applications of the scriptures as all authority, and it's all equally inspired, and it can't possibly all be equally applicable, right? Right? It can't all be equally applicable. Because if it is all equally applicable, then most of you, like me, should have been stoned at the age of 14. <laughs> right? My parents had, by law, every right to stone me at the age of 14. <laughs> Jay was stoned. That's why he's so funny. I was, I, I was going to say other things, but we're on camera, and I cannot go there. But now I'm just playing. But but really, right, if it's all applicable, if it's all authoritative for all people at all times, then most of you would not be here today. I didn't get a big amen, but that's okay. But, and, it's, and it's really nobody's fault, but <laughs> nobody probably intended for this to happen, but the ethic of love was lost. The ethic of love that was the driving force to the application 
the ethic of love that was supposed to inform the Old Testament and that was supposed to inform the New Testament, it got lost. And without anyone ever meaning to, and for without anyone probably ever meaning for this to happen in the Protestant Christianity, the Bible became a baseball bat. I almost brought a baseball bat this morning to use as an example. And people begin to pick and to choose scriptures that best fit them, that best fit their lifestyle, and they would use a baseball bat, the word, the scriptures, to beat people. Come on. Have you ever heard the term Bible thumper? Nobody? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you've all heard that, right? And, and, and Christians, Protestant Christians, used to begin to beat people with the scriptures. You, you got to do this. You, you can't do that. Oh, no, I believe I can do that. The scripture says this. No, you can't do that. The scripture says that. Well, that's not what that means. That is what that means. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. And, and this sounds so funny as I even say this in my head. But that's exactly where the apical to everyone became. All of a sudden, the same implications of it being apical to everyone became such a distraction and such a problem. And the reason that there are so many Protestant denominations today is not because they couldn't agree on how to love. They just couldn't agree on how to interpret the text. And so once again, after this reformation and this giant leap out of this temple model, we jumped right back into a temple model. And what was lost was love. Love lost. All of a sudden, it became about interpretation. How I see it, how I read it, and it became powerful in the hands of sacred men with the sacred text telling right with God. And these sacred want to love God and to be right with God. And these sacred men would tell them, this is what you do. And these sincere followers would do it blindly. I want us to change that. that and I believe that we can change it. And, and even if we can't change it, don't you think we should try don't you think we should be a part of a movement that tries to change that? Because it's simple and it's demanding and it makes the gospel so attractive. And that's how the church got traction in the first century. And I believe it's how the church will gain traction again in this century. So as we wrap up today, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to wrap this up as fast as I can, but we're going to close with five concepts, five terms or words or whatever that I believe has been diluted, and I want to say polluted, but that's probably too strong of a word, but five concepts that have been misinterpreted, misappropriated, misapplied, however you want to say it, once we mixed the Old Testament and the New Testament and the temple system and the Jesus movement, once we mixed all those things together, these words, these terms have just been mishandled. And if we're going to begin to renew our minds and specifically renew our consciences to what Jesus taught around these five ideas, what will happen is it will change our communities and it will change our worlds and it will change our families and the way we live life. Maybe if we can renew our minds around these concepts, 
it would make Christianity attractive again. Maybe it would make Jesus attractive again because some of these terms, when I say them, you're immediately going to have a definition or a thought of what they mean, and they probably don't mean what you think it means. Inconceivable. Anybody? No? Okay. I so so went Princess Bride there for a second. (laughs) Rodents of unusual size. They don't exist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, pull it back. So listen, this first ethic that I think has been distorted, misinterpreted, or, or, or messed up when, once the uh, temple system and the Old and the New Testament and all that was all merged together is this word right here, structure, okay? Structure. Jesus comes along and he says basically this, the church is a body, not a kingdom, Okay, so the whole structure of this temple model, this temple system was all jacked up because the church is a body, not a kingdom. When Jesus was being tried by Pilate, Pilate asks him about this. And Jesus says, listen, I got news for you, Pilate. My kingdom, this kingdom, and my kingdom is not of this world. And you better be glad it's not, because if it was, my people would come and rescue me and they would protect me. The apostle Paul goes on and he taught about kingdom. He taught about the kingdom of God, but he also went and he planted churches everywhere. A single one of them was this. You are a body. You are the body of Christ. You're not a kingdom. You are representatives of Jesus Christ. So the king is not here on earth together to represent Jesus Christ. The king is not here on earth with us, but you are his, and Paul uses this word, ambassadors. The king is not present. You can't physically see him. But when I leave this body, this group, this assembly, this ecclesia, you are to represent him and be his ambassadors. Paul, this is what he says. He says, now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Here's what he meant. Okay? That each one of us has been gifted. Now, when I read this, I'm specifically talking to you. Okay? If I have to, I'll go through the crowd and name every one of your names. Okay? So you just fill in the blank with your name, but he says, each one of you has been gifted to play a very specific role in the body of Christ, in the ecclesia, in the assembly, in the gathering. Which means that if you're not engaged, something is missing. And that if you're not engaged, you are missing something. In the temple model, the religious experience is all about consume. Okay, the temple model is about consume, consume, consume. We show up, we want to get baptized, why? So God can bless us, so that God is happy. We show up, we want to take communion, why? So that God can be happy with us. We show up and we want to learn so that we can be a better person. But the Jesus model is not about consumption. The Jesus model is not about you. Did I say that? Tishan and I, when we were in, we had this Bible school that we were in back in the days, we had a shirt that says, it's not about me, but it's up to me, right? Because see, in the temple system, it is all about you. Jesus, 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 what can I get? It's very 
very vertical. The Jesus model, it's not about you, but it is about the you beside you, right? The Jesus model is about engage, 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 because you are a member of the body of Christ. It's the temple model that left us with this thought. Oh, well, you know, I don't really need church. You heard anybody say that? I don't need church. I can just love God. I don't need church, blah, 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 blah. That's temple model thinking. Jesus model is this. Why would I not want to be a part of the body? Why would I want to stay home and worship alone when I can be a part of the body and when I can engage with the rest of the body and change my community and change the world? Why would I cheat myself (coughs) out of that? Why would I cheat the body? They need me. The body needs me. When you're not engaged, (laughs) when you think, well, I just don't need it, or they just don't need me, when you're not engaged, you become an amputated body part. You know what an amputated body part is? Gross. Right? Right? Just If y'all walked in this morning and I just had a foot sitting on the front row, Isn't that weird? Wouldn't that be kind of gross, right? So don't be gross. The the street, Exchange Church, our new saying should be, don't be gross, right? Don't be gross. And just nobody, no context, nobody has any clue what that means. Just don't be gross, right? Because you were created to engage. You were created to be a part of, not separate from. So can you imagine if every single person who calls Jesus their Savior decided, you know what, from now on, I'm not just going to sit in a row. From now on, I'm not just going to simply consume. From now on, I'm not just going to treat this like a temple, but I'm going to start to engage. I want to be a part of the body. Can you imagine what would happen in our cities and our neighborhoods and in this church? The second term, the second idea that Jesus completely redefined is the idea of authority. Everybody say authority. Authority. Basically, he comes along and he says, listen, authority is exercised for the benefit of the led, not the leaders. Jesus turned the leadership paradigm upside down, not just for church leaders and nonprofits, but Jerusalem, and he overhears the guys in the name of Jesus. One day, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he overhears the guys talking in the background, and they're kind of arguing over uh, who's going to be on his left, who's going to be on his right, and they're having all this, you know, who's going to be first, because they believe they're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. He's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem, and obviously, if you are close to the king, you live better, you eat better, you drive better cars, you know, you have a better house, you get to pick a better wife and all that kind of stuff. So the closer you are to the king and the kingdom, that's a good thing. So they're thinking that way, temple thinking, kingdom thinking. And Jesus hears them arguing, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. He turns around, he stops them. (laughs) He sits them down under a tree, and in Matthew chapter 20, he says this. Listen, guys, you know this, that the rulers of all the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them, (laughs) to which the disciples are thinking, yeah, yeah, we know that. I mean, you you said you know it, and we know it, because we've seen it, and that's 
That's what authority is, right? Authority, and then somebody can be under you, so you just, right? That, you know, you, you get authority, and then somebody can be under you, so you can tell them, hey, go get me this, or hey, go do that. And, you know, your authority, if you want to be at the top of the totem pole so that you have all the people under you, so, that, you know, right? And, and that's the way it goes, right? Go get me that. I'm a big shot. Okay, so, yeah, Jesus, we know how authority works. <laughs> the person who is leading is above the person who is led. You want to get to the top. So what's your point? And Jesus says, well, since you guys know that, I want you to understand this. Not so with you. (laughs) Right? I mean, they understood. They understood that I have an opportunity to leverage my power. That's why I want to be on the right or the left. Jesus, you're going to establish the kingdom. I want to be the man. I want to be there when you do that. And Jesus goes, I know that's the way it works. And you've seen it in the Gentile world. Not so with you. Not so with you in my kingdom. Not in my movement. Not in my ecclesia. When you gather in my name, this is basically what Jesus is saying. Don't you dare leverage your authority for your benefit. What a letdown, right? These guys have been arguing over who was with him by the, well, you know, when Jesus called Lazarus out, I was standing right beside him. You know, when Jesus turned away, I was there. You know, I was, he called me one day. He called me first. We called me second. Well, he came to my house. He stays in my sister's house, you know. They're arguing over all these things about who is there. And Jesus goes, no, nah, not in my kingdom. And then he goes on this, and he says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The word servant there actually means courier. He says, so you want to be great? Then you're the courier for everybody else that works for you, that serves you, that helps you. And in case that word courier wasn't strong enough, he goes on, he says, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, your purchased property. That is, that if you want to be over, you got to learn to be under. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be great in the church. If you want to be one around you, great, you have to learn to serve people, serve everyone around you. And in case they missed it, he heads on into Jerusalem. And this is the point that we talked about a week or two ago. He takes them into this upper room. He gathers them in, takes his outer robe off. He wraps the towel around his waist, and he kneels down. And every one of them, and they're eyeball to eyeball with him. And they, he pulls out the, the pail of water. And he begins to And they started, the scriptures tell us, they started to resist. They didn't like it. This was uncomfortable. It was awkward. It was inappropriate. They weren't having anything to do with it. And he stood there, and he knelt down, and he washed their nasty feet. And he went from one to the other, eyeball to eyeball. He looked at them. He washed their feet. And then when he finished, he says, now I want you to do for each other what I just did. He set an example for those disciples that would carry on because later he tells them what to do, and that makes you a disciple, okay? So so this says, basically, he's telling you this too. He's talking, I have set for you an example. No servant is greater than. Than his master. 
I'm a big shot. You think you're, you have arrived in whatever uh, position that you've, ability. And, and it means that wherever to wash. It just means you have more responsibility. And, and it means that wherever you are in life, and I'm not t- just talking about the church world for those that may not be actively involved in a leadership position inside the church, but he, he, I'm talking about anyone, whatever kind of authority you have. If you're over a group of people, if you're a manager, if you own a business, if you any time that you're over people, what he's saying is you need to use your authority. Whatever authority you have, leverage that authority so for the benefit of people around you and people under you. See, in our world, in our Western culture thinking, We've got it backwards. We leverage our authority for more authority. We leverage our authority for our benefit. You know, one of the greatest compliments that we've ever had is Kevin and I started a business together, and I was thinking about this this morning. And we have several guys. It's not a Christian business. It's a construction business. It's a money business. It's just just to make money, okay? No hidden agendas in here. Um, and so a lot of the guys that work for us aren't from church, aren't from a church background, and we were sitting in, in the conference room talking, and this has happened multiple times, and some of these guys that don't come from a church background have looked at us and said, I wouldn't work for anybody else. I wouldn't work for anybody else because you have my best interest at heart. Because, see, if we did this, Everybody would want to work for Christians, right? Because I, I know servers. I know people who've been servers in restaurants and stuff, and I've heard this. I've never been a server, so it's just hearsay. But I've heard that the worst time to serve is Sundays after church because servers hate serving Christians. Wow. Isn't that awful? That should be the, the time that everybody wants to serve. Because we're the nicest, we're the best, we're the most giving, we're the greatest tippers, we're so easy. We don't cry, we don't complain, we don't moan, we don't try to get you in trouble. It's just easy. But for some reason, they avoid Sundays. If everybody acted like this, everybody would want to work for Christians. That's the way, well, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. I don't know about the whole Jesus follower thing, but whatever it is, I tell you, it's as if every decision they make, they have my best interest at heart. It's like everything they do, they're trying to promote me more than themselves. That's the Jesus model. That's what it looks like in the Jesus model. (sighs) Moving on. Get my thoughts together. So, moving on, the next one. The, I think this is the third one. I can't even begin to exaggerate the motion behind what Jesus says about marriage. Going with the princess bride theme, I could go, Bowage. Bowage is what brings us together today. <laughs> Love. Because of our culture, the fact that we live in the West, we were raised in the United States, we miss it for sure. <laughs> but the first century, the disciples that were there, whatever Jesus said made them think twice about even following him. So whatever he said 
made them reconsider even following him. In a world where women were just property, in a world where women had no voice, in a world where women's opinions doesn't count, it doesn't count in court, it didn't count at home, in a world where women were traded, in a world where women were promised, girls were promised, in a world where women were just, they taught, supported the idea that women were second, third, that men were close to God and women were second, third, so on. In a world where baby girls had zero value, everybody wanted a baby boy. That was the value. Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along and he says this. Marriage is characterized by mutual care and submission, not male domination. Well, that goes against everything they've ever heard, believed, thought, taught their entire life. Their mamas, 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 mamas. In fact, the most amazing pointed focused teaching that Jesus ever did on marriage, he didn't even bring it up. Somebody else brought it up. Some guys came to him, some men came to him, and they were talking about marriage. And they said, Jesus, we want your opinion. You know, we're talking about marriage and, and blah, 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 blah. And everybody knows what Moses taught. Everybody knows what Moses said as it pertains to marriage. But we want your opinion, you know. We want to know, Jesus, that, you know, if you're married, you know, because we know what Moses said, but if you're married and your woman is not all that anymore, you know what I'm saying? She's gained a few pounds. She's, she's kind of a... We want to know Jesus serves or she's getting old, you know? We want to know, Jesus, what are the rules and what do we have to do to get rid of that wife and get a new one? Okay? This is what they're asking Jesus. We want to know how do we get rid of that one and get a new one? Because we know what Moses said, but we want to know what you say, Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what he thought after that. and We don't even know exactly, exactly what he said in that moment. But I have a pretty good idea based on the disciples' reactions. Okay? So we're going to read the reaction. When Jesus finished teaching about divorce, and when he finished teaching about remarriage, and he finished teaching about the status of women in a marriage and the status of men, it was so new and so ground-shaking that only his disciples standing there will ever really understand what he said and, and how he said it. And their response is really unbelievable when he finishes answering the question that the men asked about women. Here was their response. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Right? 
That's what he's that's what the disciples said. So whatever he said, and let me let me say it because when Jesus finished talking about marriage, ladies, men lost their advantage. Somebody say amen. Come on, ladies, that's a good place to shout. Because men lost their advantage because Jesus replaced ownership with partnership, ladies. Come on. He he replaced Jesus taught and understood the marriage. And listen, if If you're watching this morning and you're not even a Christian, this is a good enough reason to become a Christian right here. You may not even know about this whole Jesus and forgiveness of sins and dying for us and all that. Just the fact that in the first century, Jesus elevated and changed the status of women. He changed everything. It was, man, that's enough for me to jump on board, right? Right? He changed everything. It was so mind-boggling. Years later, the Apostle Paul comes along, and he's preaching to the Gentiles, and he's trying to teach them what a Christian marriage is like. The Gentiles, they didn't have Moses to bank shot all all their questions off of. They didn't know all of that. So Paul's trying to teach them what a Christian marriage looks like, and he makes a statement. And he makes a statement that men take out of context all the time. We wear it around as a banner. I take it out of context as jokes all the time, and that's this. Woman, submit, right? Because Paul says, women, you are to submit to your husbands, <laughs> right? We love that. We love to just play with it because it's fun. I mean, if all of the scriptures are authoritative, amen, and all inspired by God, amen, submit, woman. I mean, y'all got so quiet right there. I'm just... Just playing. Just want just to say, Alan's like, oh, my goodness, I'm fixing to leave. This is terrible. Right? Men love that. <laughs> but the thing about it is, is the church has lost sight on what Paul actually says. Because when Paul begins his discussion on marriage, before we get to that women submit part, Paul uses the very same word submit, and he says this, the very beginning of the discussion. He says, submit to one another. Okay, so that means mutually submission. Mutual submission here. He says submit to one another. Why? Well, out of reverence for Christ. Out of your love for God, submit to one another. And in this moment, the Apostle Paul says, let me explain Christian marriage. Christian marriage is about asking the question, how did God through Christ treat me, and how can I reflect that towards the person that I'm married to? Submit, he goes on, he says, submit to one another. Then he says, wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. But husbands, you have an even harder job than that. Then he says, Give up your life. Lay down your life for the sake of what's best for your wife. This was so new. So new. To us, we've heard it our whole lives, but we just can't understand the importance and significance of what he's saying. Christian marriage is a submission competition. Okay? If you are in and you are actively in a Christian marriage, That's what it is. It's a submission competition. And the the key to a great marriage is one word, 
defer. Everybody say defer. No, I want you. No, I want you. No, we did what was best for me last time. I want you. You know, it's defer, 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 defer. And I'm telling you, that is the greatest thing in the world. And then when Shelly looks at me and she says, you know what? I don't like his attitude. I don't like the way he's been acting, the what he's been doing. And he is not worthy of me submitting to. He, he doesn't deserve my submission towards him. But then she says, but my responsibility isn't same like, same as. Hello? My responsibility isn't to do what he's doing to me. My responsibility is to do for my husband what God and Christ did for me. And if there was ever a time in our marriage that Shelly wasn't worth submitting to, which has never been, never been. She's never done anything that was not worth submitting to. But let's just say she had an off day. And there was a moment that I felt like she didn't deserve my submission back because of how she acted or what she did. It's not same like, same kind. It's not just the same as. I don't respond with what she's giving to me. I respond with, well, I give back to you what my heavenly father gave to me how he responded to me. As Christians, I'm not to respond same like, same kind as pagans do. That's temple model. It says right here that my responsibility is to love her like Christ loved me. How did he love me? He gave his life, his whole life for me. Man, that could change everything, right? Okay, here's another one. That redefine, ready? Spirituality, everything, everybody say spirituality. Okay, so what is spirituality? Okay, this is a good one. Spirituality is determined by how well one loves, not how much one knows. That, that is not the way it's always how much one knows. Spirituality is a lot about how much one knows, right? Come on, you know, oh, man, I just love listening to her. She's so spiritual. Oh, man, all over the New Testament, this is what, listen, that's not what it's about. It's not over, all over the New Testament, this is what Jesus modeled. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus preached. It's how much a person loves, not how much they know. It's all over the New Testament. This is throughout all the teachings of both Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and Peter everywhere. In fact, when the Apostle Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit, when he says, hey, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, the fruit that is to manifest itself by the Spirit you have in Christ, he says this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, if a person is spiritual, this is what he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is insight. It's knowledge. It's understanding of deeper things. It's the ability to make people hang on your every word. Right? That's not what it says. That's why it's the NEC version. Not even close. You're like, wait, no, no, no. That's not what it says. But we think that way, right? Think about it. Oh, you know, she's, she's so spiritual. You know, I just... She's so, she has such great insight. No, she's smart. She studied. That, 
the fact that she studied and the fact that she's intelligent doesn't equate to spirituality. Man, I'm, I'm treading on thin water here. Thin water, thin ice. Yeah, I guess it could, it could be thin water because thin ice is going to turn to thin water faster than thick ice. Right? But then we say things like, oh, you know, he's so godly. He's so spiritual when he stands up. And, you know, he's so, he's so prepared. No, 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 no. He's just prepared. He, he can read, you know. That doesn't equate to spirituality. Listen, spirituality isn't limited to whether or not you have access to the Bible. The New Testament church started with no Bible. They had an Old Testament. Most of them couldn't even read anyway. And Paul establishes these churches in Gentile areas where they didn't even have the Old Testament. The true test of spirituality is how well one loves. So look at what he says. You've heard this before. He says this is actual, the actual version. But the fruit of the Spirit, and everyone, listen, this is a verse you should memorize and you should pray this every day, that, that, that this fruit is produced out of your life every day. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of Christ in you that comes out of you should be this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Listen, you don't even have to be able to read for God to emanate or to allow His Spirit to produce those things through you. That should just come out. Listen, those things are very horizontal. Think about that. Everything that I just said, love, horizontal. Joy, horizontal. Peace, patience, kindness, horizontal. This is the things that is being produced out of you to other people. There are things that people can see, that people can experience. They're sacrificial. And this is my favorite one. They are cross-cultural. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what language you speak, whatever nation you're in, whatever group you're a part of. These are cross-cultural. They're unnatural. Because the Jesus model is far more simple, but it's far more demanding. So never be fooled by the man or by the woman who knows a lot, but doesn't love a lot. Never be fooled by the spiritual leader who seems to know a lot and can pitch their voice in a way that everyone listens to what they say, but that has nothing to do with spirituality. Zero. That's temple thinking and a powerful personality. Just remember this. Adolf Hitler split the world with a microphone. Never fired a shot. Never visited a concentration camp. And that's the power of the spoken word. That's the power of a charismatic leader. And the Jesus movement, spirituality, is not measured by charisma. It's measured by the fruit of the Spirit, which means 
the most spiritual person you know may be the quietest person you know. The most spiritual person you know may be the person that knows the least about the New Testament. But they know how to love like Jesus loved them. Wow. Okay, the last term. The last term that we're going to redefine. I thought about preaching a whole message just on this one term, and it's holiness. Everybody say holiness. Holiness. That is a that has always been a word that is man, it's used as a bat big time. I have been beat, I have used holiness to beat people over the head. Holiness is about being this is what holiness is in the Jesus movement. Holiness is about being a part of rather than setting oneself apart from. Now, rewind 15 years ago and have me preach a message on holiness. I would have said specifically that holiness is to set oneself apart from, to be different, come out from among them and be separate. Okay, says the Lord. I would have taken all these scriptures out of context and I would have preached that holiness is to be separate and to be different. Listen, in the Jesus movement, holiness is no longer about withdrawing from, it's about engaging with. It's not about disengaging from the world. It's not about huddling up and, oh, don't stay away from those lost people. Stay away from those pagans. You don't want lost cooties all over you, right? Hurry, all the Christians, huddle up in our Christian huddle. Hurry, we need to do Christian Bible study, and we need to go to Christian yoga and do our Christian workouts, and then afterwards we're going to listen to our Christian music and go watch our Christian people. And brunch, and we're going to pay for all those, pray for all those lost people. Be separate, stay away, stay away, stay away. Hopefully, they get saved and they find Jesus and they become a Christian, and then they can get in our huddle, they can get in our group, they can become a part of us. Listen, thank God we don't think like that around here. I know I'm preaching to the choir. As I was saying that, most of y'all are probably getting sick of your stomach just even thinking about it. Because that's not who we are, and that's not who we are as a, as a church. It's, it's about being engaged with, not disengaging from. Here's the thing. In the temple model, sacred is, sacred is equated with separate. That's the truth. In the temple model, sacred is equated with separate. In the Jesus model, sacred is determined and defined by Engagement with. Engagement with. The reason we get confused about this is the Old Testament. God calls this nation out. He calls this nation out, and then Moses comes in, and Moses sets up the government, basically, of this nation, sets up the style. Moses comes along, and Moses teaches them, to be separate, be separate, be separate, and it all in the name of God. And a lot of it was with good intentions. God was calling them out. He was trying to establish something to go somewhere to eventually start something for all people. But there's a, a temple model system that gets stuck in here. Moses brings them out, and he establishes the law, and he says things like this. 
Don't eat like those people. Don't dress like those people. Don't interact with those people. Don't marry those people. Don't raise your kids around those people. Don't do any of those things. If that pagan stuff becomes a part of your culture or a part of your society, get rid of them. Stone the kids that are rebellious. Stone the adulterous wife, right? That's what he says. You are to be apart from, holy, set apart. This is all in the Scriptures, the Old Testament, all authoritative. Remember how dangerous this could be to a bunch of uneducated people who are now told this is all authoritative for all times? Right? Hang out with them, don't hang separating. And they're like, okay, don't do this, don't do that, and don't do this, don't hang out with them, don't hang separate, 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 separate. Then John, he comes in and John starts writing. He says, Jesus came along and, and established this brand new day. He says it's a brand new day. And that, that was the old way. That was the old system. But we're not called to be separate from. We're called to be a part of and engage with people around us. And and the reason we know this is that John, he gives us one of the best illustrations. John, he writes the Gospel of John. And he's writing the Gospel, and this is several years later. This is towards the end of his life. And he's writing the Gospel of John, and he's trying to think of how to start it. And he goes, and, you know, if we believe that the Bible is inspired, then we believe that, that, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to say this. He starts off his Gospel, and he says this. John won and made his dwelling among us. God decided not to stay separate anymore. That's why holiness, that word, has is, been such a, so misused over the years. It has been the, one of the biggest bats I've ever seen the church use in all the years. Come out, be separate, be separate, be separate, be separate, be separate. John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God decided not to stay separate anymore, not to just be among us, but to be one of us. And then Jesus shows up. Everybody freaks out because up until this point, holiness was about being separate. It was about being apart. It was about being segregated. It was about sticking to your own, not marrying, not talking to, not eating with, not associating with, and, 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 and stoning the right people at the right time, separate, 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 separate. Jesus comes along with, and all of a sudden, he starts touching unholy things. He starts engaging with unholy people. He starts touching diseased people. All the things that, that they're taught to be separate, be separate, so that you can remain ceremonially clean. Jesus starts healing one disease-ridden people's houses, and the, the holy, holy, unholy, unholy, he's going to unholy people's houses, and the, the holy people, the religious people, start going, whoa, 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 this man cannot possibly be from God because we are to be separate. You can't do that. You are to be holy, separated from. Instead of becoming contaminated by their germs, power went out from him, and they were healed. And that's what you've been called to as a Jesus follower. 
That's what we've been called to as a Jesus follower. No more disengagement. The whole Old Testament message of disengagement has been overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus, who says this, it is a brand new day. I have started a new movement with a new ethic, umbrellaed by this new command to love. So we shouldn't be surprised that at the end of his time on earth, he gathers his followers together. And they think he's going to establish a kingdom. It's like, no. That's, they're like, wow, is there going to be a kingdom? And Jesus is like, no. That's temple thinking. But Jesus, are we going to retake Jerusalem? He goes, no. That's temple thinking. But we're going to retake all of our sacred sites, right? No. That's temple. This is, this is new. So pay attention, guys. Here's what I want you to do. And this is my imagination taking over for a minute. He says, Matthew, write this down. This is going to be good. We're not going back to take over Jerusalem. We're not going up to set up this big kingdom. We're not going to take all these old sacred places because you're sacred now. So Matthew, write this down. I want you to share this with everybody. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Wait, wait, what? You mean you want us to, to go together? You want us to split up? What do you want us to do? I mean, where, where are we going? He says, I want you to make disciples. Where, where, where do you want every cave, every ethnic group, every cave, every mountain, every valley, every tribe, every tongue. I want you to go everywhere. And, and I want you to go, and I want you to teach them what I've taught you. I set for you an example. Remember? Remember what I did? And I washed your feet. And I said, you do this for each other. Now I want you to go. I want you to take it. I want you to take this to everybody else. Because everybody needs to know this is the new ethic. This is the new movement. This is where the movement is going. And he says, you're going to go to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And he says, but as you go, I want you to know that I have a promise that's going to go with you. And my promise is this, that I will be with you always to the very end of the age. There's not a place that you're going to go that I'm not going to be with you. Luke, Luke, he does his research and he writes at the beginning of his gospel because, you know, Luke wasn't there for everything. So Luke's gospel, they say, is one of the most accurate because of the investigation he did. He interviewed so many people, talked to so many people to get the most accurate story. Luke's writing his gospel, and he describes it this way. He says, listen, I've checked everything, and to the best of my ability, this is exactly what happened. Imagine this, that when Jesus died, the curtain that separated the holy of holies, where God supposedly dwelt, 
right? This was the most sacred place on the planet. I'm telling you, they had a bloodline. They would tie a rope around the, the priest's foot. They would put bells around the hem of a garment. They would listen because if the priest crossed that bloodline and there was anything in his life that wasn't right, he was struck dead immediately. As soon as those bells would stop ringing, they'd tug the dead body out. This was the holiest, holiest, holiest of place. And Luke says, when Jesus died from everybody else, and when Jesus died, it was ripped, not from the bottom to the top, but it was ripped from the top to the bottom as a representation of the holiness of God coming out and dwelling among the people. No longer was there a sacred place. Jesus finished that. We became the sacred. We became as the holy of holies, the Holy Spirit that that dwelt in this holy place now lives inside of me. That's why when when we used to sing songs or say things about the presence of God or, oh, we need the presence of God, in my mind I tell myself all the time, no, I don't. I am the presence of God. I am the manifestation. And that is not arrogant. That's not cocky. That's me understanding who I am. I know who I am, and I know whose I am. When that curtain was split, it was split so that that power could come and not be stuck in a place, but it could live in me. It could indwell me. Everyone around me gets the joy that comes. fruit of that being inside of me is that everyone around me gets the joy that comes out of me. They gets the peace and the kindness and the gentleness and the goodness that gets my self-control. Because that lives in me. It dwells in me. Got that right. Man, what if we ever got that right? What if we understood that holiness is not about coming out and being separate? Engaging with is about engaging with. Engaging with so that people can see him in you. Because he, how to tap into it, how to enjoy it, how to operate. They just walk around like dead men, dead women, not knowing what's inside, not knowing what he's done for them. So the question remains. Stand with me. This morning, the question remains this. So, these five things, structure that we're, we're a body. Spirituality, holiness, marriage, this mutual submission to one another. But then it ultimately comes back to this. In everything that I do, in everything that I say, what does love require of me? After Pastor Kevin's message last week, I told him, I said, man, I need you to hold me more accountable. I just want that. I just want that. I want people so much to recognize it in me. I I just want people to recognize it in me like they did with with Peter and John at the temple gate 
when they were interviewed by the police and all those people, and they and and Peter stands up and he says, "Listen, the the God that you crucified, that or the man that you crucified, that God raised from the dead, he's the capstone." And Peter preaches this awesome message, and when he finishes, well, the beginning of that, it says Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, he spoke. Peter preaches this message, and then at the very end, they look at one another and they said, man, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Man, that's fruit. Do you have a friend, somebody that is like them or acting like them, or I can tell you have been hanging around so-and-so, do you just start saying things like them or acting like them or doing things like them, right? That's the way I want with Jesus. I want people to go, man, he's been. So as we wrap up this series, close out, love require of me. So this week, what does love require of you? As you can go and, and meet people and see people and interact with people, make that your banner every day. Amen? Make that your banner every day. Father, God, we just thank you so, so very much for insight, wisdom, knowledge that you've given us, for understanding that you've given us. God, I thank you for these moments as we look back and we, we study Scripture and we see your agenda all along, all along, was with us in mind. And we were always the plan, and we were always the purpose. But you picked me not so that I could be separate, and not that I could be special, but you picked me because you trusted me to share it with everybody around me. You picked me because you trusted me to be an example of it to people around me. The reason that I was blessed into the family that I was and that life has, has directed me and pointed me to this moment right here was so that I could live it out loud and be an example. So Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for living the life that I can look to and that I can exemplify every single day. Father, we love you. We thank you, God. I thank you for this body that you've put together. God, I pray that you give us wisdom and, and ideas that, that as we grow, we'll, we'll learn to build one another up. I pray right now for this body, the exchange. God, those that may be watching online, those that may be listening, God, I pray right now that whatever it is that we're going through personally, whatever it is that maybe we're going through at home or in our family or in our finances, God, I pray right now that you just begin to intervene on our behalf, God. Jesus, I pray that you continue to build us up. Build us up. Teach us to lean on one another. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. And if you receive that this morning, say amen. 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 We love you guys. Hope you have an awesome week. Uh, and we will see you back here.